Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Hello and welcome to LawPod. I'm Dr Lauren Dempster. I'm a research fellow here at Queen's University Belfast based in the School of Law. And today uh, on this episode of LawPod, I'm joined by Professor Kieran McAvoy and Dr Anna Bryson. Uh, this episode of LawPod focuses on the recent launch of a public consultation on the uh, legislation to implement the Stormont House Agreement. This agreement uh, was the outcome of all party talks in late 2014, and it establishes four mechanisms aimed at addressing the legacy of the past in Northern Ireland. So as I mentioned, I'm joined today by Professor Kieran McAvoy and Dr Anna Bryson. Professor McAvoy is a Professor of Law and Transitional Justice here at Queen's and Dr Bryson is a Senior Lecturer here in the Law School. So to begin with, perhaps you could both tell me a little bit about your experience of working on legacy issues here in Northern Ireland. Okay, I'll kick off. Uh, Thanks, Lauren. Um, I started working on legacy issues in 2004. I was working with a local human rights NGO, Healing Through Remembering and with a cross-section of people, um, some victims, some uh, ex-combatants, some Republican and Loyalist ex-combatants, former members of the British Army, a range of people from across civil society. And we worked together over a two-year period and produced um, a report um, outlining options for dealing with the past, which came out in 2006. So I've been at this for about 14 years. Um, I have a background in history, Lauren, so um, I suppose I had some experience in the past of working on the history of conflict, uh, issues around the history of political prisoners, and indeed the history of the peace process, broadly speaking. But when I came to Queen's, I became involved early on in an initiative that Kieran and others had spearheaded, focused specifically around the Stormont House Agreement. And I suppose with my uh, expertise in oral history, there was an opportunity for me to come on and contribute specifically to work um, on the four mechanisms that were envisaged under the Stormont House Agreement, one of which was an oral history archive. Okay, um, I guess then, Kieran, you have said that you um, have been involved in these issues since 2004. So perhaps you could tell us a little bit about the background to the Stormont House Agreement and uh, previous efforts to address legacy issues. So, um, well, unlike other peace agreements, the Good Friday Agreement doesn't contain an overarching mechanism for dealing with the past, such as a Truth Commission. I think there was a strong sense amongst the people who involved in the negotiations of the Good Friday Agreement that to try to do that, on top of everything else they were trying to do in terms of releasing prisoners and the east, south, east, north, east, west north-south institutions, establishing the assembly, all of that, that to also try to deal with the legacy of the past as part of the Good Friday Agreement negotiations was a step too far. And so it wasn't there. It's not contained there. So what we've had um, as a result of that omission, and I think that omission was justified, by the way, I think they were right to make that judgment call. But as a result of that omission, what we've had is a piecemeal approach to the past. So we're in different elements, in particular, the criminal justice system, the inquest system, for example, the ombudsman um, who looks at allegations of police malfeasance, the police themselves, um, where different bits of the criminal justice system and the prosecutor's office have been picking up 
the slack um, in the absence of an overarching mechanism. In 2000, so in 2006, the Healing Through Remembering report came out. Uh, in 2009, uh, a report was, um, which was commissioned by Tony Blair's uh, government, the consultative group on the past. It came up with a series of recommendations, including the establishment of a legacy commission, which was a truth commission by another name. Um, those, the, the, that piece of work and the wheels came off it as a result of one of their recommendations, which was a 12,000 payment to um, all victims of the conflict. Um, and so that fell apart. We then had uh, a period where nothing happened. Then in 2013, um, all party talks were commissioned under the, the chairmanship of uh, Richard, Richard Haas and Megan O'Sullivan with a sort of ha- arm's length involvement of the two governments. That also failed to materialise. Then the Stormont House Agreement, where the two governments kind of moved centre stage with the five um, uh, pl- local political parties, then members of the Northern Ireland Executive. They came up with this quite complicated uh, architecture of um, four different mechanisms and it's taken us till now, four years on, um, to get uh, a draft legislation produced and a consultation process. So it's it's been a long, long process to get to here. Okay, perhaps you could both tell me a little bit more about those four institutions. Well, I can give you a brief overview, Lauren. So there's a historical investigations unit, the HIU, which is essentially the kind of prosecutorial mechanism, an opportunity for those who want to um, pursue prosecutions to go before that mechanism. There's the ICIR, which is, um, I suppose the truth recovery mechanism. So people who are not particularly or necessarily interested in prosecutions, but who would like information about the deaths of their loved ones. Um, There's an oral history archive, which takes a longer view and enables people to to share stories um, from uh, engages a much, much wider range of participants. Uh, And finally, then uh, that IRG, which, as I said, is about uh, looking at wider and broader patterns and themes and narrative, if you like, uh, of the past. Cool. Um, Well, perhaps then if we can look at those institutions in a bit more detail, uh, Kieran, can you tell us about the HIU? Okay. Um, So the Historical Investigations Unit, um, as Anna said, um, is a mechanism that which ultimately could lead to uh, prosecutions. It's a mechanism which um, will take over the work that was previously done by the Police Ombudsman's Office, um, the legacy element of the Police Ombudsman's Office, which looks at allegations of past uh, police malfeasance, and also a a previous uh, piece of work that was done by a body called the Historical Inquiries Team. This was a cold case review style um, police investigation set up by um, former uh, PSNI Chief Constable Hugh Ward, um, which looked at all conflict-related deaths. And the wheels came off that particular um, mechanism because of its inability to maintain its independence um, and uh, sufficient rigour and uh, effectiveness in the investigation of um, state cases, cases where the state were, was directly involved in killings or where there were allegations of collusion. Um, and so the idea is that the historical inquiries team will pick up those two pieces of work, will um, investigate um, and potentially prosecute, um, although I think it's very important, particularly for victims of the conflict, to understand and the uh, former director of public prosecutions, Barry McGrory, McGrory, made this point in the last few weeks, that it's very unlikely there will be high numbers of prosecutions as a result of the work of the historical investigations unit and even if anyone is prosecuted um, they will only serve a maximum of two years. So the, 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 the prosecutorial element of it is important but it's important not to oversell that function. Perhaps for me, the more important work that will be done by the Historical Investigations Unit is actually, it also has a truth recovery function in the sense that all families who are directly affected by conflict-related deaths will receive a report on the circumstances of the death of their loved ones. And 
and um, in a context where you're only going to have a handful of prosecutions, that truth recovery function of the historical investigation unit, for me, is probably much more important, in fact, than, than, than prosecutions of a small number of people who are only going to go to jail for two years in any effect. Anyway, um, so that's one mechanism. I think we can probably come back to some of the more yeah. controversial elements around that. Um, the second mechanism, as Anna talked, uh, touched on earlier, the um, ICIR, the Independent Commission on Information Retrieval. This is a mechanism which is based on a, a another previous mechanism that was used in the context of the disappeared, um, as you know, um, there were uh, 16 people who were uh, murdered and disappeared, by most of them by the IRA. A mechanism was created by the two governments where, in effect, um, information that was provided into that mechanism couldn't be used for prosecutorial purposes. And that's been quite successful in, in, the, in the sense that the majority of those bodies, 14 of the 16, I think, 13, is it? 13 of the 16 mm-hmm. have been returned. Um, and so that, for, as a transitional justice mechanism, is widely perceived as having worked. So that uh, element was fed into the, the, nego- the, the political negotiations um, around the Stormont House Agreement. And the local parties and the two governments agreed to establish a mechanism like this. So the idea essentially is that if, um, as Anna said, you're a family member of someone who was killed during the conflict, you want to receive more information on that death. You approach this mechanism. This the, the individuals who work for this mechanism would then reach out, probably through interlocutors, one would imagine, to, for example, the Republican movement, to loyalism or to elements of the British state, seek information back on the circumstances of that death. And then that information information would be fed back in a, in a report similar to the historical investigation um, reports to the family members. But the family in approaching that mechanism know that none of the information therein can be used for prosecutions. So that's that's the deal in effect, that if you approach that mechanism, you're seeking information, but you know that none of that information can be used for prosecutorials of uh, for prosecutions um, of people who are involved in um, harming or killing your loved ones. So the other two mechanisms then I can pick up on, Lauren. So first of all, I suppose the one that I've been most closely involved with myself is the Oral History Archive. I think it was welcome that, you know, there was an Oral History Archive at the centre of this suite of mechanisms to deal with the past. Somewhat unusual, I think, compared to other jurisdictions um, or other countries that we have looked at in terms of transitional justice. And I welcomed it, certainly, because I felt that, well, here's an opportunity to do something that perhaps the other mechanisms can't. So the others, as Kieran has just outlined, are at least to some extent by their nature, case by case. And I think it has been argued by others uh, you know, potentially fragmentary, whereas there's an opportunity perhaps with the archive to look at some of those broader patterns and themes and, as I've said before, to maybe broaden the canvas on dealing with the past. So what I mean by that, I suppose, I mean there's an opportunity to engage a much broader range of people. Um, it's quite right and proper that this entire process should be victim-centred and it should primarily be about uh, dealing with the wants and needs of those who've been most directly affected by the conflict. But I think thinking about broader issues, even around non-recurrence, I think it's important that we think to some of the more complex underpinnings of the conflict in the first place. And some of that necessitates, I think, engaging with a wider range of people. And the Oral Archive could do important work there around enabling people from um, various walks of life in Ireland, North and South, and in, and, and indeed victims across the water um, who are often neglected to come forth and share their stories. And it may be um, either because they were directly affected or because they were indirectly affected that they don't feel that the ICI or the HIU 
is necessarily um, what that's not the road they want to go down. But a lot of people do feel that, that, you know, it is of some value to them to actually be acknowledged, to be heard, to have their story in all its complexity put on record and to, to sort of preserve that for future generations. And I think that point is another one about generations. There's an intergenerational dynamic. There's an opportunity, for example, to engage with gender perspectives. And again, it's hard to see where that comes through um, uh, so evidently in the other mechanisms. So for all those reasons and more, I suppose I welcome the inclusion of the Oral History Archive, but I might come back later on to some of the the problems and challenges um, that remain with it. And I suppose I feel strongly uh, about the need to kind of address and rectify those challenges precisely because I believe it could do important work. Uh, the, the fourth mechanism I'll turn to then briefly for now is the Implementation and Reconciliation Group, the IRG. So as I said um, a little bit earlier, that's the mechanism that the end of this process is designed to kind of stand back and look at those wider patterns and themes. Um, controversial, I suppose, to some extent in that it was seen as uh, as something of a kind of a political, you know, it's a kind of a Dehaunt type process whereby political parties each can nominate according to certain weightings a number of, of representatives onto that 11 strong body. Um, but uh, there would then be a team of academics that would be tasked with doing the heavy lifting in terms of digesting uh, the reports that are coming through from the other bodies and, and, and essentially mining the evidence that would feed into a report at the very end of all of this on wider patterns and themes. Um, that. I think healing through remembering in their visual very, very, very importantly had it. I mean, it's hard to describe just talking about it if you can't actually see the visual, but they had it almost as the kind of uh, overarching the roof on all of this, the bit that is, is holding up those other pillars. And I think that was actually very deliberate and very important on their part, because really what it was designed to say is that it was the bit that could easily have been forgotten about. It didn't see its way into the first draft of the legislation. And I think ourselves and the Irish government and others pushed very hard for that, actually, that mechanism um, to be represented on the face of the legislation um, because we felt that actually this is extremely important. It's not something that should be sidelined and indeed I think it's welcome that it is now uh, in, in the latest draft of the legislation that has gone out for public consultation. And again, very, very important because it is about standing back and looking at that bigger picture. And again, uh, I think there are issues that we could talk about in terms of the appointment of academics to that board, how they go about their work um, and about how that whole process of feeding in because one of the things, um, if I can kind of preempt that discussion a little bit, one of the things that has come to light in recent discussions around the legislation that has been put out for consultation um, is about um, the range of sources that can be drawn upon to feed into those uh, into those final reports. And I think one of the things that I have picked up on um, and, you know, remain to be corrected by uh, the NIO and others, but it seems to be, to me, uh, I seem to get the sense that there is perhaps a stronger emphasis on the primacy of the reports coming through from the HIU, the ICIR and the OHA. And if you unpick that backwards, then it becomes very important in terms of what is admitted in the first place into the OHA, for example, if those stories, those that are deemed to meet the threshold of that which the director of the, of the OHA you know, thinks is, is appropriate to admit into the archive, if, if that then feeds through into the IRG, you know, all of this becomes very important. So can I just pick up, uh, Lauren, on, on one of the points that Anna's just raised there about the, the importance of the oral history archive. So, so for, ex for example, and its relationship to the Implementation and Reconciliation Group. So, so for example, uh, a lot of the other mechanisms are focused on deaths. If in the oral history archive, however, um, you had a lot of people coming forward who were talking about uh, gender-based violence, 
Now, gender-based violence might not have resulted in deaths, but if you had a lot of, uh, primarily women, one would imagine, coming forward to the oral history archive saying, this is an important part of my history of the conflict, my under- what happened to me and my family during the conflict, and if the director of the oral history archive is, is picking up stories like that, then that becomes a theme or a pattern, you know, and that becomes quite important. So it has been a controversial aspect of a lot of the negotiations here um, that we are focused explicitly on deaths, and we are focused... but. Deaths are not the only element of what happened during the conflict. And so the oral history archive, as Anna said, is an important corrective to that potentially, that if we want to capture the big picture of what happened, what was the experience of people during the conflict, the OHA becomes an important delivery mechanism for that in terms of the work then that will be done by the Implementation and Reconciliation Group. Um, it's certainly something that, that struck me in terms of the Stormont House Agreement and also the draft legislation is this um, exclusion, essentially, of, of those who were injured. Um, obviously, you mentioned there the oral history archive is one way of capturing those stories. Um, as you're both aware, and I'm sure um, some of our listeners will be as aware as well, a number of individuals have been campaigning for some time around a campaign. Uh, around the the need for a pension for the seriously injured. Do you think there's scope in the draft legislation to um, address those needs in some way? Okay, I um, I think there are two things that are not in the legislation, one good and one bad. Um, And I'll focus on the bad first. The bad thing that that I think could have been included in the the legislation is explicitly this issue, um, addressing the needs of those who were severely injured um, as a result of the conflict. Um, I think it's a a moral disgrace on our polity um, that those needs have not been addressed. And I think it's an even bigger disgrace that our politicians have have failed to reach an accommodation on this issue. Um, What we have is, in effect, three constituencies that are affected um, as a result of, of severely injured. We have a very small number of ex-combatants, um, I think um, the majority of them probably loyalist, um, who were injured during the conflict. And they have needs, and indeed their carers may well have needs as well if people are, are severely injured. We have a, a much bigger category of civilians um, who were killed, or sorry, who were severely injured during the conflict, and they have needs and their carers may have needs as well. And then we have a significant uh, number of, and particularly part-time members of security forces, who also have needs, um, um, or whose carers may also have needs. And it seems to me that it's not beyond our collective imagination to find a way of addressing the needs of those three separate constituencies in a way that is needs-based, that takes the politics out of all of this. And it seems to me that the this legislation is the moment for that to happen. I think if we are, this is this this legislation is designed to deal with the past. This is a very important and serious element of our past that needs dealt with. And I think that I th- I mean, in fairness to the government, I think I hear a receptiveness amongst senior officials to hearing the reasoned arguments for the inclusion um, of, of this issue in the legislation. But it seems to me that it's incumbent upon all of us who, who are involved in this area of work um, to work with and across these constituencies to determine more clearly what those needs might be and then to come up with creative ways in which that could be included in the legislation. And I think the legislation is the place for that. The other thing that's missing, and which has been a big, uh, big controversial debate, as you know, recently, is the issue of a statute of limitations. The statute of limitations um, has been promoted um, by um, military veterans who served in Northern Ireland, mem- former members of the British Army. Um, the idea was taken up um, by the Defence Select Committee, um, which issued a report last year. I gave evidence to that Select Committee. And it has a, a number of the, uh, particularly the English tabloids, picked up on this issue um, and, and pressed it. Now, the government decided they had suggested at one juncture this might form part of this legislation. They took it out. I think that was the wise decision. This debate hasn't gone away. I, I just noticed the Daily Express on Tuesday of this week. Um, front page um, is pushing for a campaign for justice for our veterans. The problem um, for 
those who are arguing for this, for the inclusion of um, a, a statute of limitations, statute of limitations is an amnesty by another name, but the problem for those who are who are advocating um, for uh, the inclusion of such of such an amnesty is that my view, and I think the view of most serious lawyers who've looked at this issue, is that if you include an amnesty for state actors, the legal consequences of that um, for, is that you will in effect have a de facto amnesty for all um, of those who were involved in the conflict, i.e. the paramilitaries as well would benefit. Because what would happen is if that if you have a piece of legislation that says, okay, there's a statute of limitations here, there's an amnesty for members of the British Army, probably applying as well to former members of the RUC or indeed potentially members of the of the intelligence services, um, that if that amnesty is there for state forces, the first time that the DPP, the Director of Public Prosecution's Office, takes a case against a paramilitary defendant, his lawyers or her lawyers are going to argue this is an abusive process. There is an amnesty um, for this, these participants in the conflict, but not for us. That's an abusive process. It's a fundamental principle of human rights law that you have to have equality before the law. And their defence will win that. Their defence, that argument is is intellectually compelling. So I think it's important for all of us who are particularly for, for victims, because it's a very controversial aspect, that if we're going to have a conversation around statute of limitations, let's have an honest conversation. And let's, let's be honest and upfront about the fact that if there is a statute of limitations um, for state actors, it's going to end up in practice applying to everyone across the board. And let's be honest about that. Okay, um, thanks, Kieran. I You both touched on earlier in, in your overviews of the separate four institutions that there are various issues and potential sources of controversy there. One of the, the main, I guess, potential sources of controversy that has been around for a couple of years now um, are the issues and concerns around national security and the sense that um, restrictions on the disclosure of information based on the British state's national security concerns might mean that families are presented with perhaps not very much information. Can you tell me a bit about the uh, the national security concerns relating to the Stormont House Agreement? As you know, Lauren, yes, indeed, national security one of the, was one of the issues where in 2015 when we had the leaked legislation, that was immediately one of the issues that was highlighted as problematic and, to use the cliche, a kind of a red line for some of the parties uh, to the negotiations. And I think part of the issue around national security was, first of all, that it hadn't been mentioned in the Stormont House Agreement. There had been reference to keeping people safe and secure. But national security presents a particular problem because it's not defined. There's no definition in law for it. And that then le- leaves it very much um, to the discretion of the Secretary of state to determine that which is um, it, it meets the threshold of a kind of a national security concern. So I think legitimate concerns were raised straight away about what would actually be redacted, who would have oversight of that. And essentially what people were being asked to do was to just trust the Secretary of State um, to get this right. And, you know, whilst there were kind of reassurances um, put out around, look, please be reassured, this will not be material that is just simply politically embarrassing, it would only relate to a very small number of cases. I think it was fair for people to say, well, look, let's see what this looks like in practice. Can we have a definition? Can we see what would actually, you know, would it, for example, refer only to lawful and current counterterrorism techniques and so on? So I think um, that human rights organisations that we are involved with and others quite understandably raised this as a concern and thought, well, if people are going to risk quite a lot to go before the ACIR or, or families to engage with the HAU, they want to do so in the full knowledge that what's going to come out in the end is the fullest possible. Within the limits of the law, I don't think anybody is going to have any disagreement around the very understandable state obligations to keep people safe and secure, to protect lives and so forth. But what people do not want is to see that people have engaged in good faith with these mechanisms and then for um, the Secretary of State or other parties
authorities to step in and, and, and redact information in a way that is not transparent, that is not defined. And so, yes, that is an ongoing concern because that is one of the issues that has not gone away. Kieran flagged, you know, the, the fact that, you know, it's regrettable that the pension for the uh, seriously injured is not included, applauded the fact that statute of limitations is at least to the side of the of the draft legislation. Um, but this remains, I suppose, an ongoing sore that, that we and others have tried um, to deal with. Yeah, I think, I mean, Anna's hit the nail on the head. The issue is one of trust. I mean, I, 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 when I was a kid growing up, um, if you were if you were lying um, you, and you were trying to persuade someone that you weren't lying, we used to say, I swear me ma's life. Um, that used to be our way of say, demonstrating our bona fides as 10-year-old kids in your area, that we were absolutely telling the truth. And in effect, that's it sort of reminds me, sometimes when I see uh, colleagues and officials from the Northern Ireland office, it slightly reminds me um, at times when I hear them saying, you just have to, we, we promised we wouldn't do this very much. We promised we, <laughs> you just have to trust us. You know? So it slightly reminds me of my 10-year-old self, you know, covered in chocolate, telling my mother, I, I, it definitely wasn't me who had all the chocolate, you know, I swear in my mom's life. It has that sort of mean to it. I don't think this problem is unsolvable. I think in the in the current uh, iteration of the legislation, what the there is a mechanism built in um, for an appeal to the High Court using... Uh, judicial review standards and I'll explain what that is at the moment. So the principle has been accepted that um, a judge should look at this to make a determination. That So if, if for example, the director of the Historical Investigations Unit has written up a report on a particular murder and has excluded information, or sorry, has wants to put that report out into the public domain, the Secretary of State which in effect would mean probably MI5 or uh, uh, the PSNI or other, other intelligence agencies want to exclude bits of that information um, then a, a judge can look at it, right? So you, there's an appeal mechanism, but on judicial review standards. So what does that mean? It means basically that the the uh, Secretary of State would have had to have been acted so unreasonably that no reasonable Secretary of State uh, could have taken such a decision. Now, historically, there has been very significant levels of judicial deference to the executive, particularly in the area of national security. I mean, historically, judges just wouldn't have looked at it at all. I mean, if... Once, the, once the, the state played the national security card, the judges used to just wash their hands and say, we can't look at that. That's not for us to determine. We don't know all of it. There's, there, that culture of deference is still quite pronounced, um, but it wouldn't be just. It's not just an automatic uh, get out of jail free card. Anyway, so the, the fix, the solution to it is, OK, you've accepted to the, and this is what we've been arguing to our colleagues in the Northern Ireland office, you've accepted the principle that a judge should look at this. Let's just nudge that a, a, a little more widely. Let's take it away from um, uh, the national security uh, veto, as it's been described by some, and let's say, OK, well, first of all, if there are issues where information, for example, that's contained in a historical investigation unit report, could put lives at risk. If if, if, if someone who's, who was an informer who was working for the state might be named or it might be possible to deduce from that report who their identity were, well, obviously that information would be taken out. That's the, their Article 2 rights, the right to life under the European Convention on Human Rights, would be triggered. And therefore, I don't think anyone's really made an argument that that should be the case, that that sort of information is going to the public domain. So that's one element. Article 2. That's a root, Article 2. So if you include in the legislation that someone's Article 2 um, rights might be put at risk, and there is a reasonable risk, then that information will be excluded. The other um, element that could be included, as Anna suggested, is that um, when we, we probed our colleagues at the Northern Ireland Office a little, tell us, you know, we, 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 our starting point in all of this is to say, of course the state has reasonable responsibilities um, to protect lives, um, 
to be engaged in counterterrorism. That's part of its function as a state. Tell us some more reasons why you might want to reduce information about what happened in, in Northern Ireland in the 1970s. And so one of the things they came back on was, well, if it if it was putting information into the public domain that would undermine uh, contemporary uh, counter-terrorist strategies or techniques. So things that are going on at the moment, for example, against um, Al-Qaeda or uh, ISIS or uh, dissident Republicans or indeed loyalists. So something that would undermine something that they're currently doing as counter-terrorist strategy. And so we said, OK, fair enough. Now, bearing in mind, like we were talking about stuff in the 1970s, I don't know if you've ever seen a picture of a bug from the 19th. They're about the size of a television, you know. So there was no internet in the 1970s. You know, so counter-terrorism looks a lot different now with mobile phones, with the internet and so on. So, okay, let's take it seriously as a concern. And so you could simply write into the legislation that one other criteria by which the information might be lawfully excluded, that a judge would make the determination, um, would be if um, the information related to contemporary and lawful counter-terrorist strategy. So if the state is up to, if if the, the agency, be it MI5 or whoever, can make a reasonable case in front of a judge that we are doing, this is what we're doing in terms of counter-terrorist strategy or technique. We therefore need to exclude this piece of information that would have been in that report because of these reasons. The judge would look at that, look at all of the evidence around that, including the intelligence um, evidence. Now, all of this, the other technical aspect of all of this is that this is highly sensitive material, obviously, you're looking at, and very, very, you know, super sensitive stuff that has to happen behind closed doors. Um, and so, therefore, you're looking at a mechanism where it would be a closed mechanism, closed court procedure, um, and the judge would be making that determination without the media present or indeed without, probably without families present as well. That then, then your, your, your design issue is, well, how do we ensure that the rights of families are properly represented in those kind of conversations? And so working with um, some NGOs who work closely with families, we came up with a mechanism whereby um, lawyers with whom the families would have uh, uh, significant confidence in their abilities, perhaps they'd represented them previously or whatever, they could be representing the interests of families in those hearings. Um, for the lawyers to do that, of course, they would have to go through a process of deep security vetting because it's highly sensitive information. That's an extremely intrusive process and it's a big ask for lawyers to do that. Some informal soundings we took, however, amongst human rights lawyers here in Northern Ireland suggested that for the sake of families, some of them were willing to go through that. So all of that to say, there is a, a possible solution to all of this. It isn't, it's a very complicated issue, but it's an issue, a, a central issue in terms of if the Historical Investigations Unit does not uh, enlist the support and trust of the families who are directly affected by it, it won't work. So it's an issue all of us have to get right. But it's possible, it's possible to resolve it. As the, as the institutions are currently proposed, what we're going to have is a form of truth recovery mechanism working alongside a prosecutorial mechanism. How realistic do you think that is that those two can coincide? And do you envision any, any problems with that? I do envisage problems with the one. <laughs> <laughs> I think, look, this is this has been there from the get go. This tension, and it's there. You know, we're not the first country to kind of face uh, this challenge around how you reconcile the kind of objectives of truth recovery on the one hand, and uh, albeit dim the prospect of prosecutions on the other. I think um, our uh, well-known journalist in this jurisdiction, Brian Rowan, often refers to this point about how can you be running with the what is the expression running with the hare and hunting with the hound? Isn't that it? 
or indeed the other, and it's now become almost hackneyed, that phrase of we had a kind of a peace process was it was partly about letting people out of jail and are we now going to have a kind of a legacy process that is about putting them back in. But more specifically on this issue of how the ICAR relates to the HIU, I think as we began to devil with the detail of the latest iteration of the legislation, um, tension or concerns naturally came to the light to light about um, about sequencing, about what and, and specifically about this issue of, as you know, Lauren, um, there's supposed to be a sort of limited immunity attaching to the information that would be submitted to the ICIR. So the idea is that, you know, people who are perhaps not as interested or want to prioritise the information recovery bit might go to the ICIR and seek information about the death of their loved ones. Um, paramilitaries and others would be invited to come forward with information that might be of value to those families uh, in the knowledge that the information submitted to the ICIR would not, you know, would be would would have immunity, that you could not be prosecuted on the basis of that um, information. Albeit in the full knowledge that if forensics or information came to light from another source, you could be prosecuted, but not uh, the information uh, in the ICR, submitted to the ICR would be ring fenced. Now, lately, people have begun to ask questions around, for example, well, what if in the report that was produced for families at the end of an ICIR investigation suggested that there was a second eyewitness that had never been interviewed? Would there be anything to stop the family who received that report, perhaps just making it known to the authorities. Well, you know, in the flawed legacy investigation for our inquest, for example, that was done originally, there was no reference to this. Might I just bring it to your attention within the the, the, the remit of the law, just bring it to your attention, uh, dear authorities, that there may have been a second eyewitness there. And so indirectly, there is perhaps the potential that information that comes through the ICIR could indirectly trigger or help an investigation. Is that fair to say, Kieran? Yeah. that is going through the HIU? Um, and so we've begun to think about, well, really, how realistic is this? Are the two kind of uh, fundamentally opposed to one another? Would we need to look about sequencing? Do we need to look about whether or not you would have to have gone through the HIU first and then go to the ICIR? What can be done to overcome those fears and challenges that are out there? And I think more broadly speaking, I suppose, look into my own experience of having interviewed hundreds of reluctant witnesses over the years, including many former combatants. I know at first hand how difficult it can be to persuade people to come forward. Perhaps my experience is sometimes around convincing, for example, woman, you know, that your story is important. People who don't see themselves. You know, I, I just showed a film earlier. There was an interview with a teacher I had done and it took me a long time to convince her to do the interview because the normal thing was, what would I have to say? And then she starts off the interview by saying, well, there was a time the bullet came through my classroom. And you're that was not normal. But similarly, talking to former combatants, I know how long it takes. And this is one of my bugbears in a way with the OHA is the naivety sometimes with which you expect that an orderly queue of, of people is going to sort of form in the Titanic quarter. It doesn't happen like that. It takes an awful long time. People have good reason at any rate to be uh, reluctant to come forward and, and, and give their stories. Never mind go to the ICIR about the most sensitive information that you could possibly imagine. So I think we have to be realistic about those sensitivities. And again, just to digress for a second, I'm thinking just to illustrate um, for listeners that aren't perhaps uh, so familiar with this jurisdiction and that mantra that whatever you say, say nothing. Like it is very, very deep in our DNA. And so, uh, you know, I, I think... You know, that, that challenge is there to begin with. You then throw the whole Boston College thing into the mix, which had an 
an undoubted kind of freeze effect, particularly, I think, in loyalist communities, it's fair to say, where people just felt, and I have since found that myself in oral history circles, going out to interview people about the most innocuous subjects. And they'll say, you're not going to do a Boston College on me, are you? And as I say, that's in the context of gathering people's stories. Um, And so how much more is that going to come into play when it comes to convincing people, as I say, who have every reason to be reluctant to begin with, you know, to kind of cross that threshold and 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 take the risks of of kind of uh, of bearing their souls to the ICAR in the knowledge that it could potentially self-incriminate, albeit in a very indirect way. And again, just as Kieran outlined in relation to national security, I don't think any of these issues are insurmountable. I don't think we're the first um, to encounter and to seek to overcome these problems, but it is undoubtedly an issue that we have to square with and that I think understandably came to light early on in this public consultation phase. I think, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with Anna. And I think, I mean, the flip side of that, I mean, the, Anna's right in terms of the challenges. And um, the flip side of it is, however, that the commission that was that was established to deal with this spirit functioned effectively. And one of the reasons it functioned effectively and actually relationships with of trust were developed between it and former IRA personnel in terms of the recovery of those bodies is because the non-prosecution, the limited immunity uh, connected to that commission was airtight. And so the confidence of the ex-combatant community was built um, because that was a t- very tight. There was there were no prosecutions, there was no leakages. And so it's not, it, it is a significant challenge, um, but it's possible to do it. But it's really central in all of that if that mechanism is going to work that the guarantees of non-prosecution that are contained in the legislation are airtight. The issue has actually arisen here because of, a, of the cover note on the legislation. Interesting enough, so the legislation itself, on my reading, looks fairly tight. It's the explanatory cover note um, that the Northern Ireland Office have put out that accompanies the legislation um, that has startled some in the ex-combatant community. I mean, we did an event on this at Queen's a couple of weeks ago. Two prominent ex-combatants were in the audience and they they noticed this this uh, space between what was in the actual legislation and um, what was in the cover note very quickly, um, as indeed would anyone in that constituency. So at the moment, what's in the, in the legislation proper looks okay to me, but I think all of us need to be imaginative based on the, on the experience of the Disappeared Commission. It worked, it can be done, um, but that you can't play around with uh, the airtightness of a guarantee of non-prosecution linked to that mechanism. It's got to be very explicit and very clear, and I think in our all of us will be involved in a process of feeding directly into the ongoing consultation, and I imagine that's, that's exactly what we'll be saying and looking at ways of tightening up that guarantee of non-prosecution so that uh, I mean, the primary beneficiaries of that mechanism at the end of the day will be families who are affected by violence. That you know, ex-combatants can just say nothing. They can just continue to say nothing. The, the people, the purpose of getting that mechanism right, is to bring some some closure to families to get to give them a mechanism where they can get some information back. That mechanism will only work um, in the real world if the ex-combatant, be they state or non-state, can be guaranteed they won't be prosecuted as a result. So again, it's a design challenge, but it's not insurmountable. Okay, well, we all work at a university. So can you tell me a little bit more about the role of academics in this process? 
Well, I suppose, as you know, there's a very specific role for academics in relation to the IRG. So I mentioned earlier that it's an 11-strong body of political appointees, but the heavy lifting will be done by a team of academics. And again, I think this is one of of the areas we have looked closely at um, to see, well, how will these academics be appointed uh, in accordance with what criteria and so forth? Um, And and also looked, I suppose, at at the sources that the academics will be able to consult, because I mentioned uh, a little bit earlier that I felt that there seems to be more primacy given and the latest iteration of the legislation to uh, the material that's coming through the OHA, the ICIR and the HIU. Um, And that kind of linked into a question about what other sources the academics would be able to look at. And there seemed to be some attempt to actually limit it. And we immediately sort of flagged that as somewhat curious and thought, well, if, for example, you were looking at the theme of ethnic cleansing or collusion or so on, it would seem very strange indeed not to be able to consult lost lives or in the case of collusion, the De Silva Review and so forth. Um, So that was something, a question that we will seek clarity on in the process of this consultation. And perhaps more importantly, what we wanted to be clear on was that the independence, it shouldn't be that the emphasis is on the independence of the academics as people, but rather that the process is is designed in such a way that the political appointees can't interfere with the work of the academics. So again, going back to the point that was raised earlier about how you kind of garner trust, you uh, appoint the right people by clear and transparent criteria and then trust them to get on with it. I suppose in relation to the work of the academics, what we don't want to see is one of the 11 political appointees reaching in, redacting, directing, saying you can look at that, you can't look at that, take that paragraph out, please. I mean, that would obviously, you, you, you open this question by saying we all work in, I think we would all find that anathema um, uh, to be kind of uh, censored in that way. Um, I suppose in our efforts to be constructive, because it's very easy in all of this to just point the finger and wag the finger. And really, I suppose we've been very mindful that that's not good enough. And part of our job uh, in this model build process and in the wider sort of work that we've been involved in is to try and come up with creative and imaginative and workable solutions to all of this. So in the course of uh, the early negotiations, uh, one model that I I think I remember looking at the Royal Irish Academy and the, the model that they have in place to appoint academics to their various committees and then naturally looked across to um, the RCUK, which, as you know, funds a number of our own current research projects. And they have very robust um, processes in place, both for appointments to their peer review colleges, to people who assess grants and indeed the criteria by which academics are appointed to kind of review and approve funding um, for serious and large scale funding. So we sort of said, well, look, that's maybe a mechanism that's out there that could be drawn upon to help um, sort of uh, appoint academics to to, to inform that process by which academics are appointed to work for the IRG. And indeed, uh, I actually think, because I have a, a real issue around the OHA, and we don't have time to go into it today. I wish we did, because I, I'd be here till, till midnight telling you about all the reasons why I think the OHA needs to be tweaked and improved. But probably the central issue there is the need for an advisory board that isn't just a sounding board, a steering group that may be consulted by a senior civil servant, that is to say the deputy keeper of the public records office, We need instead to turn that about and ensure that there is a steering group that represents existing oral history groups, that represents the diverse expertise that needs to be brought to bear on that particular mechanism. And the reason why I'm raising this here is that I think that, for example, the Arts and Humanities Research Council, um, the the kind of parallel mechanism to the ESRC, could be looked at in terms of uh, appointments of academics and others to that particular mechanism. So I suppose all of that to say, Lauren, yes, academics have a very uh, specific role in 
terms of the IRG um, could have a serious and important input into the advisory board that I think should be at the core of the OHA. And we have tried to be helpful and constructive in pointing up potential solutions around mechanisms that could help to inform that process. Yeah, no, I think uh, that's that's all true. And um, I suppose in terms of the big picture, as I said earlier, I mean, I've been working on this for 14 years. Um, the, the job of us as academics um, is highly technical, some of this stuff. And so I think we have a public responsibility to explain it and explain it in ways that some of it's very controversial as well and explain it in ways where people can make up their own mind about how, how they think about it, but from as informed a position as possible. Um, and so, so one of our jobs is, is that. Secondly, I think we... As Anna said, we've uh, tried to engage as constructively as we could in, with all of the political parties in the, involved in the negotiations, with civil society groups and with the two governments, and feeding in lots of technical information, trying to find solutions to some of the knottier issues, for example, around, around national security, the amnesty question, and all of that. So, so create, trying to be creative and imaginative. We uh, At Queen's, where uh, I'm very lucky, I, I have some fabulous colleagues, including my two colleagues who are sitting beside me here, um, but a lot of us have done work internationally as well, and so sometimes you can try to come up with bespoke solutions locally that, that, that draw upon that international experience. We're fortunate that we, you know, we have that experience, but this is our, we live and work here as well. You know, this is a, re, and you know, none of us who, who live through the conflict, Anna and I are old enough to have lived through it. None of us come out of it unscathed. And so we have a, we have a personal stake in all of this. We're raising families here. We're trying to help people in our society. And indeed, many of the people who are directly affected by the conflict are the most vulnerable. They're also the most, the most vulnerable, I think, at times to political manipulation as well. And sometimes we can act as a buttress to that. I think in some of these debates, for example, around the amnesty question and so forth, I think we've been quite effective at, at, at acting as a buttress, at stopping victims from being manipulated by political actors and others, um, where if you give them the information, for example, around the amnesty question, then they can make up their mind whether or not they think that's a good idea. But that's part of our job. I suppose as well for us as academics, we have to be honest that, you know, being an academic is a, f it's a funny job, you know, because, you know, you spend, a, you spend a lot of time on your own um, or in, you know, locked away in libraries and... You know, it's hard. You know, it takes, what, three to five years probably to write an academic book. It's, it sells to an audience of two to three hundred. The average academic article is read by 2.5 people. One of them is a family member. They're lying. They didn't really read it. They just think it's nice. They read the first paragraph, whatever. So it, it can feel for academics pointless, actually, you know, as, a, as an enterprise. Obviously, teaching students is, is extremely rewarding. Um, but, we, you know, given how much focus and emphasis there is for all of us on research, Doing, being involved in researching and writing about it, something that really matters, that really, ma this is this is what this looks like and feels like to me as someone who's, who's working in the field. Um, our work here can make a difference, and and hopefully it will. I think that's, you know, when you know when when we're all putting our feet up and and uh, we're retired after our, our long and uh, illustrious academic careers, having done bits of work or having put your body and soul into something to try to make a difference, you know, well, maybe we we'll sleep better at night, you know. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you very much, both Anna Bryson and Kieran McAvoy, for joining us. You have been listening to LawPod, an informed take on current events, brought to you by the law students and staff at Queen's University Belfast. This episode was produced by Richard Somerville and Lauren Dempster. Our theme music is by Colonel Chocolate and the Justice Triangle. LawPod is funded by Queen's Law School and the Queen's Annual Fund. Thanks to Dr Anna Bryson and Professor Kieran McAvoy, our speakers today. You can follow us on social media. We are on Twitter at QUB LawPod. For more information, you can also visit our website, www.lawpod.org, and please have a look in the show notes for more information about the topics covered today. You can find us on iTunes or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Lauren Dempster, and this was LawPod. <laughs>